when I began my meditation practice in the late 70s, we had the good fortune to be exposed to Joseph Goldstein's teacher, who was Manindraji, this little Indian man from Calcutta who he had met over there. And then Joseph brought him to America. And so I had some opportunity to spend some time with him. And he has had one teaching for us that is a teaching that we use a lot in this practice and one that I remember a lot and I'm reminded of a lot. And Manindraji said that our practice is simple but not easy. Our practice is simple but not easy. And he would say it with his Indian accent and you know the shake of the head, simple but not easy. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps by now, you know, we have some sense of the truth of this because the instruction that's given is a very, very simple instruction. And that is, instruction is to simply be aware, to or be mindful, simply be aware. And that's all we have to do. It really is nothing else, and, it, and it's, it's really quite profound that there is nothing else. That the awareness that in the contact, in the meeting of the moment, everything unfolds from there, if we can get ourselves here. <laughs> and and the, I guess the really unfortunate thing is that we can't get ourselves here. <laughs> I mean, how could we get ourselves here if we're lost? How do we bring ourselves back from being lost? And that's, in a way, really something quite mysterious about this practice, is that in some strange way, we arrive here. <laughs> and sometimes we don't know how we woke up. You're off in a fantasy, or you're off in some kind of memory. You're, um, spaced out or tired, and then there's a moment. You go, oh, I've been lost, or I've been in my thinking, or where was I? And what brought us back? I mean, have you ever really considered that? And yet it's that moment, that moment when we are here, that everything unfolds. So in a way, it's that moment. That's why I say that moment when we are aware when we actually know where we are and what's happening, that is our most precious moment. Our most precious moment. Because nothing can happen when we're lost. And when we're lost, it means that we're just caught up in our old, automatic, habitual ways of being. And in that, there is not the transformation. We're, we're caught, we're fixed, we're static in the identity in the self, in the person that we believe we are, there isn't really the possibility for change. It's only that light of awareness that, that brings forth the resources, bring, brings forth the qualities, brings forth the wisdom that can really bring about that, that wholesome transformation. Ajahn Amaro, one of the monks from Abhayagiri, calls it the fairy dust. The fairy dust in the, in the practice is that moment when we're awake and we're aware, 
there's little fairy dust in there. <laughs> you know, the wisdom is, 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 is uh, brought forth, but not unless we're here. And so each time that we arrive back in this very mysterious way, we're here. <laughs> and we pay attention, we choose to stay present, and we have the intention for that. We have the uh, 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 vigilance and the diligence to, to sustain that attention. We are strengthening that muscle in some way. We are reinforcing the power of that mindful attention. It does get stronger, which is why it's so important to really recognize what it's like when we're here, what that experience is like when I'm actually present. So in some ways, what's happening is we're becoming familiar with presence. We're becoming familiar with what it's like to actually be in present time, in present reality. We want to get to know that. So that when we come back, when we're lost and we're spaced out, and we come back, oh, right, I'm here. And then we can fully appreciate, fully uh, 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 make contact with the way that experience is manifesting. Oh, yeah, I'm really breathing. I feel the sensations moving through my body. I feel the energy now. And, and I'm sure this happens a lot in the Qigong practice when you're really expanding into the presence. And you can start to feel some of the energy moving and expanding and the opening and the different opening of the channels. We really start to get to know what it's like and that experience deepens and expands and becomes more profound. This is what happens. This is our path, the path in a way, the path of opening, the path of discovering, the path of expansion. Uh, as, we, as, we get, as we strengthen that quality of mindful attention, that mindful awareness. So that's our practice, and yet it's so difficult we find there's so many um, obstacles. There's so much in the way. We can't just bring ourselves back. We can't just make ourselves present. And that's what's so frustrating for us. And then we can easily get caught up in the judgment and the rejection and the criticism and the uh, uh, resistance to all of what's happening because it's not happening the way we want it to happen. But it's really so useful, I think, to contemplate that when you're lost, how can anything happen? Where's the choice going to come from to be present if you're not here? And so this, this judgment that happens, this expectation that happens when we come back, it's kind of futile, really because there's nothing you can do anyhow. So it's sort of starting to get some recognition of what we can do and what we can't do, where the actual doorway is to our transformation. And that is only when we actually are here. In other words, 
when you wake up and you realize you've been lost, forget it. <laughs> Don't even give it another moment's attention. It's gone and now you're here. So what's important is to put all of your energy and all of your focus onto what's happening now because if you start going back to the past or try to recreate something in the future, you're kind of lost again. You're going back into something that's already finished, it's already passed, and what you're really wanting is what's right here now. So feast at the table. <laughs> this is where all the, the good food is, the, all the good nourishment is, is here. So I'm talking about this just to bring in this contemplation because we do get, give ourselves generally such a hard time that our, we, we aren't more present. We're not more, uh, uh, more able to be aware and mindful. But this is our predicament. This is really the human predicament. If we could just snap our fingers, if we could just like wave a wand and say, I want to be present, I want to be aware, and we are, then we wouldn't be here right now. There would be no spiritual path, actually, because we, would, we wouldn't need one. <laughs> we would just snap our fingers, and then everything would come together, and everything would be great, and everybody would be enlightened. But that's not how it works. That's not our predicament. So in a way, we have to do this more long, arduous kind of practices, because we keep running up against our own habit patterns these very difficult patterns of mind, which are called ego mind. Ego mind. We call, in, 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 in Buddhism, this word ego is usually referring to, well, the Buddha never talked about ego. So the word actually came from Western psychology, which we have sort of adopted in, 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 from Freud in the last hundred years. But ego is a good word. Because it's a word, in, in the way we use it, it's different than actually the way they use it in psychology. Here it's the problematic self. When we talk about ego mind or ego activity, we're actually talking about that which is problematic, that, that which interferes with being whole, with, which, which interferes with being a true and complete and realized human being. So there's the ego, which is the kind of veil or the obstacle, and there's, there's that which it is obscuring, which we have different ways that we might talk about that. One way we talk about it is our nature, our innate nature, or our awake nature, or the awake mind, or the awakened heart. And so much of what we explore is what's interfering with access to that? What's interfering with knowing our true nature, our true, our innate sense of who we truly are in our fundamental way, in our fundamental nature? And so much of what we're exploring is, is that. What is this veil? Or sometimes you use the, the metaphor veil, or sometimes you use the metaphor dust, dust in the eyes. We have dust in our eyes. We can't see clearly, or we have a veil over our eyes, we can't see. So what is that? That's what we're exploring. That's what we're looking at together. So the first couple of days of a retreat are usually quite a confrontation 
with this ego mind or with this um, difficult part of ourselves. Or we might say that it's a confrontation with reality because we start to see what's real, what's really here. We start to see parts of our mind and our, our, our behavior and our patterns and our personality and all those parts that we would rather not see. And particularly in the first couple of days, because there isn't really um, a certain concentration established, there's still a lot of the um, what we call the hindrances. The Buddha talks about these five difficult mind states that are present in the beginning of a retreat, that as we move more into the silence, as we're moving more slowly, as we get more quiet, as we get more concentrated and we work with the mindfulness and the, and the focus of attention, those hindrances can start to die away. And we get, we often, and for most people, we get more calm, we get more quiet, more tranquil. But these hindrances, these five difficult mind states that the Buddha talks about, the first one is the grasping mind or the wanting mind wanting our experience to be other than it is, this grasping onto certain experiences. The second one is the opposite of that, the aversive mind not wanting certain experiences where we push experiences away. So we're caught between the grasping and the aversion, the grasping and the aversion, and we can feel ourselves just whipped around like, um, you know, like a what is the metaphor? <laughs> well, you know what I mean. <laughs> we just feel pulled all around in so many different directions by that mind of grasping and aversion, grasping and aversion, wanting, not wanting, liking, not liking. And it can be exhausting. And then we can find ourselves in the next two difficult mind states, which is tiredness, sleepiness, dullness, because we're so exhausted by our, 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 all this activity of our mind. And then the opposite one of that is restlessness. So we're either sleepy or then there's all this agitation and worry and restlessness that's going on in the mind and body. So that's, those, that's the fourth difficult state. And then the last one is the, state, is the mind state of doubt where we start, because we're grasping and aversive and sleepy and restless, we start to doubt the whole thing. <laughs> we doubt our capacity to practice. We doubt the teachings. We doubt the teachers. We doubt everything. <laughs> and then we have a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> you know? and, and, and I think you laugh because you know what it's like when you're really just caught in the middle of it. All oh, this activity. Very difficult. So, our, so what we practice in this opening and allowing and accepting, you know, what you hear ad nauseum, is everything, to accept everything, even what you see in your own mind, to accept the, the grasping and the aversion and the sleepiness and the tiredness and the doubt, because if you're not accepting and you're not allowing, then what are you doing? caught more in the aversion and the grasping and the sleepiness and the restlessness and the doubt, exactly. Caught in the resisting. So there is no other doorway but the allowing and the accepting and the relaxing. Because everything else is ego activity. Everything else is the wanting, 
what I think is a good idea for me. <laughs> I have this, I, the ego mind has this agenda for itself. And it has good reasons for that because it thinks it actually knows how to get what it wants, which is basic, you know, as I spoke about before, basic happiness and comfort and security and ease. And, but it doesn't know how. It doesn't know how to get there. So the practice is so much. The, the foundation is this, ah, oh, and we use the breath. That's why the breath is so key. Because with that out-breath, as you take that out-breath, everything lets go. That is the the function of that out-breath. It's such a release for the whole system. And breathing in, breathing in all the air, the nourishment, the oxygen, all that comes in. And then breathe it out. This wonderful circulation. And all the muscles relax, the tension relax. This is what you're practicing, not only in here, but with Tija as well. So this fun, this is again why a practice is so simple. (laughs) Simple but not easy. We go back to the same foundational practices. And when, we, when this, these hindrances arise, our practice is to see them for what they are. We do want to acknowledge them for what they are. Yes, there's wanting in the mind. There's aversion in the mind. There's sleepiness. There's restlessness. There's doubt. To see them, but to see that we don't have to feed them and we don't have to get caught up in them, but we can rest back in to the body and to the breath into the spacious awareness and let go of those fixations, to see them for what they are. And this is what's really key in the practice. We use our mindfulness to pay attention to what is actually occurring in the mind and the body, to start to discriminate, to start to identify, to start to have some sense of what's actually going on. Because until we turn inwardly and take a look, we won't know. We can, we may, depending on your circumstances, you may either feel like there's a ball of suffering or a ball of confusion or a ball of pain, or you'll have gaps gaps in this confusion, pain, and suffering. Things will be okay for a while, but yet without the deeper understanding of what's actually occurring, that comes back because it's habitual, it's conditioned. It's caught up, the pain and confusion is caught up in the personality, in the, in the identity of who we take ourselves to be. So the teachings help us shed some light on this, on this, what it, this, 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 this very difficult predicament that we find ourselves in. So one of the things we do is we identify, oh yeah, wanting. Aversion, um, grasping, doubt, whatever those particular conditions of mind are. It's so key to work with this rejecting mind. 
the mind that has its agenda, has its ideas for what is supposed to be happening. And this is really what we are confronted with when we first look at our minds. It often comes in the form of this should. I should be doing this, or I should be like this, or this should be happening. Why isn't this happening? When we hear the should in the mind, and if you're able to track it and pay attention to it, that's a very good signal that you are being derailed by this ego activity. Anytime you hear this should, which perhaps you've heard that it, it's, it's the same as shitting on yourself. <laughs> you're just shitting on yourself when this should is repeated again and again, I should do this, I should do that, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that. It's so insidious, it can be so insidious. So this way of rejecting, rejecting, rejecting what's happening in our experience, which is self-rejection, rejecting ourselves, rejecting what's happening in our experience. One time the... um, Dalai Lama came to the Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast. This was some years ago. It was, we, were, we were quite blessed. I wasn't there at the time, but I heard this story. But Dalai Lama, the, 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 uh, there were yogis, about 100 yogis, sitting for three months, which happens every fall. It's happening right now as we sit here. And one year, the Dalai Lama was in town, and uh, the, the Joseph was able to get the Dalai Lama to come to talk to the yogis. How wonderful. <laughs> and he had some questions and answers, and this uh, one yogi raised his hand, and he really, from the, a deep place in his heart, was talking to the Dalai Lama about this very strong sense of unworthiness that he felt that he couldn't find any way in himself that he could va- anything he could value, any way he could feel he was worthy. And there was such pain and such despair. He felt so small and so little and so confused. And he was asking the Dalai Lama for help. And when the Dalai Lama heard this man speak, the story goes that his heart just went out to this man and he said, You're wrong. You're wrong. He was so, he couldn't couldn't believe how um, a person could think this way of themselves. A beautiful, precious, valuable human being having this kind of view, this wrong view, this very, very painful view of himself. And the, the story goes that the Dalai Lama actually felt hurt. He felt the pain. He felt this man's pain, that this man could feel this way and not see his beauty, not see his nature, which is the nature of a Buddha, just as all human beings have the nature of a Buddha. And I love that story because I could just feel, in a way, I could feel that heartfelt compassion that the Buddha felt in that moment when he, he just, it was incredulous to him. 
And perhaps when we really feel into this for ourselves, perhaps we can feel how incredulous that is, that we could feel that way about ourselves, our, our, our precious heart, our precious being, that we could not see the value, the worth of who we are in our beauty and our pristine state. This is our predicament. And what covers this over is this rejecting, is this judging, is this critical mind. And so it's so important to know it. It's so important to see it. These forms of rejection. So these hindrances, these five difficult mind states, are forms of rejection. When we're grasping on to an experience, we're rejecting another experience because we think that's the one we're supposed to have out of some kind of idea. Or if we're push away another experience, we're rejecting that experience because we have an idea that another one's supposed to happen. This agenda, this ideation, which is not really based on reality, because how can we know How can we truly know what's best for us in the deepest way, in the most profound way? So these forms of rejection appear as this judging or reacting with anger, how we can get angry at ourselves or at other people, this resistance, this controlling, manipulating our experiences or avoiding which is a kind of going to sleep, covering over, avoiding, pretending, suppressing what's actually going on. Or the doubt, being confused. Doubt is a form of confusion because we don't see clearly. So these forms of rejection. And they're so embedded, oftentimes they're so embedded in the fabric of who we take ourselves to be that we don't really see them. We believe it. It's so hidden. It's hidden, hidden from our view, hidden, hidden from conscious awareness. That they become uh, beliefs, uh, limited beliefs that we take to be reality, and then they give shape to ourselves and to our life because we believe them. And so one of the possibilities with mindful attention is we can begin to see Oh, yeah, there's the self-rejection. Oh, there's the judgment. There's the criticism. There's the undermining. It's happening now. And when I see it, I don't have to feed it. I don't have to buy into it. I don't have to follow it down its path to pain and confusion. That's what's so amazing, is that we actually have a choice. In awareness, when we are present, when we can see, we have choice. I can go down this path or I can go down that path. I can go down the path to more sense of limitation and unworthiness or I could go down the path to more upliftment and expansion and love and kindness and connection. Which path am I going to choose? (laughs) But only if we see that we have a choice. When we're caught in the pattern itself, 
and it, it's hidden in that kind of hidden, embedded way. We don't know we have a choice, so we just act out of it. And we feel the impact. We feel the pain. And as we become more sensitive, as we become more attuned, as we become more connected to ourselves, we feel the pain even more. And that's what's interesting, because we think that as we become more attuned, we feel less pain. And then when we start to feel the pain of the constriction and the judgment more, we think that something's wrong. And then we can judge ourselves again and undermine ourselves again and give ourselves a hard time because we're feeling more pain. But actually, the pain is an example, is a symbol of more awareness and more expansion, more attunement. So we can't, if we try to evaluate what's going on and where we are, we get in trouble. Because this is a very mysterious path. It's a very convoluted path. And so then we come back to the simple instructions. Notice when the mind is constricted. Notice when you have a, uh, an experience where you're feeling compressed or small or tight or limited, um, contracted in some way, and breathe. Breathe and open up. Breathe, ground yourself, center yourself, use some of the tools that you have that you're learning, and that helps break that fixation up. It helps to break it up so that we're not feeding it any longer. If I believe that something is wrong with me, then I need to be fixed. But what if nothing is wrong with you? (laughs) Can you take that in for a moment? Can you really take that in? There's nothing wrong with you? What happens when you hear that? Is is it ricochet or reverberate? (laughs) Can it go in? (laughs) It's a hard one. There's nothing wrong with you. Therefore, you don't need to be fixed. And if you don't need to be fixed, then what are you going to (laughs) do? What are you going to do with this one precious life? Because you see, if you think you need to be fixed, then your activity is going to be motivated from ego. The ego that thinks something's wrong and you need to fix it. So then the only thing the ego knows what to do is to be involved in grasping, aversion, controlling, manipulating, doubting, rejecting, resisting. It doesn't know any other other way. So we have to get out of the whole game. We have to get out of the whole thing. It's like, get out of that room. Go to a new room. <laughs> go to a, don't even go into a room. Walk out of the room into the, <laughs> into the open space. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just in the room, walking around, 
different parts of the room. It looks different in different parts of the room. There's different furniture in different parts of the room. And then you might even discover another room and you go into that room, but you're still in another room. And then you discover another room, you're still, we want to get out of the house. <laughs> Just get some fresh air. <laughs> Breathe. Smell the trees and the flowers and the birds. We need some new air. So we're trying to get out of this, the view, this view that keeps us caught in some kind of this, this doing activity, this busy activity, ego activity that always has some kind of agenda for us. And I'm really wanting to bring some question. I'm wanting to bring some doubt. This is the great doubt. This is not the small doubt that I was talking about before, but the great doubt, the great doubt that asks, well, gosh, do I really need to believe that? Is it really helpful to believe those thoughts that are running through my mind that tell me that I'm really weak and, and unworthy and I can't do the practice and there's something wrong with me and I, and I don't have any real strength and I don't have, whatever it is. Do I have to believe that? That's the great doubt. We want to encourage that. So that's why we say, that's why this practice, we just have these practices, these, these, these healing practices, healing practices, the, the practices that help us relax, help us accept, help us inquire, help us let go, help us open up to more awareness, wisdom, compassion, healing practices. They're so fundamental, so important for us if we want to find a way out of our dukkha, out of our pain, out of our confusion. Hamid, my teacher in Diamond Heart, says that these patterns of mind, these ego patterns of mind, these contracted, which are contracted states, he says what they do is it's, as it's a kind of a thickening of our consciousness. When we're caught in those states of mind, it thickens our consciousness that cuts off our intimacy with ourselves and with everything else. So a thick consciousness. It cuts off our warmth from being ourselves, the warmth of our own heart. And I, 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 I can resonate with that image because I can feel when I'm caught in those difficult mind states and I believe that something's wrong, I feel that thickness. I feel that opaqueness. I feel dense and kind of hard. And as we become more sensitive to the actual energetic feeling of those states, we can feel that. That's why it feels more painful. It's actually, we, we're more at, uh, in touch with the overall impact of those states of mind. And when there's some awareness, when there's some interest, when there's this kind of urgency, this, this sense, this urgency I was talking about last night, this urge for awakening, then that contact with the confusion and with the pain can actually be, again, the fertilizer for us 
being more diligent with our practice because we don't want to live with our pain, we don't want to live with the confusion, and therefore we feel a stronger sense of urgency to move beyond it. We know that we can because there's these, the spiritual path that's laid out before us that says if you follow this path, you will be free of this. You will be free of your pain. You will be free of your confusion. And all the ancient wisdom teachings say the same thing. And all the great sages and all the great masters say the same thing for thousands of years. And so there's some of us who hear that. We want to be free. And if we don't necessarily want to be free in the bigger sense of the word with a capital E, you know, sort of enlightenment, awakening, at least we want to be free of our pain, even if we don't know where that's really going. We don't want to live with this suffering. And that wakes something, us, something up in us. It doesn't have to be, you know, the whole trajectory just yet. Little steps are fine. <laughs> <laughs> but we kind of go, we move more into the fire, you know, because we need to move more into the pain and the confusion, and it takes us a little closer to the fire, and then we start to feel the heat of that fire. And there's something both bitter about that fire, it's a little hot, but we also like it. Sort of like the, the moth that flies into the, into the flame. It's its demise but it's attracted to the fire. And in the same way, we start to feel that in ourselves. There's something attractive. We get pulled in, and it makes no sense. It's not rational at all. You can't even tell ordinary people. They don't understand at all. Why would you come to a retreat? You know, and sit and you know, sit and walk and sit and walk. And if your body hurts and your mind is busy and you know you're just getting more upset and more agitated, why do you do it? Why you know people don't understand who haven't really done it. But something attracts us. We go towards it. So this thickening, thickening of our consciousness start to feel that more. I want to read this from uh, Alice Walker called The Meditation Blues. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind, cold self-interest, insistent fear and judgment, whispered insults, vengeful fantasies, triumph and despair, a conditioned unfolding so impersonal, we take it personally, sometimes aghast at the casual cruelty of even minor fears and celebrations, sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind, and sometimes it stays broken long enough to touch even this pain with love. Sometimes the mercy washes even Mrs. Macbeth's hands, turns tragedy to grace, and makes it all worthwhile. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. Sometimes it breaks my mind 
to watch my heart. <coughs> so when we talk about breaking the mind, we're talking about breaking up that which is keeping us small, which is keeping us limited, that keeps us caught in a particular view of who I take myself to be. And it's the rejecting mind, it's the resisting mind that holds that all together. It's hard to get this piece here. It is that very activity that holds that pain and confusion in place. And then we identify ourselves as someone who is suffering and who is in pain and who is in confusion, and it's that very activity that holds it all together. And it does that because it's its job to do that. That's what the ego's job is to, to keep it all together because it doesn't know what will happen if it all fell apart. It's scared to death. So it's working as hard as it possibly can to hold everything together. And so meditation's the last thing the ego mind wants you to be doing. And it's going to really rebel and really give you a hard time because you're not listening to it. <laughs> you're turning away from it. And it means that it's no longer in control in the same way that it was. Doesn't like that. So there's a confrontation here. There's a confrontation going on. A confrontation with reality. Hamid says, he calls this condition, you know, this condition of holding and grasping and manipulating, this condition of holding. He says, he call it, it's a kind of Velcro state. You know, you've heard this, you know, also Ruth Dennison, another teacher, says this identification with the mind is like Velcro, you know, and to try to take Velcro apart, you really have to rip it, you know, it's really stuck together. And Hamid says that Velcro is not a condition of realization. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're actually exploring this Velcro mind. It's, it's really stuck. You know, and it's stuck at many, 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 many different stages of, of, of evolution on the path. We just see things more and more and more clearly. And usually with our resources and tools, it's a little easier to come unstuck. Maybe we won't stay stuck quite as long. Just gets a little easier, but doesn't mean that we don't get stuck. I'm not sure. I kind of, I, I, I sort of think at this point that when we're fully unstuck, maybe we won't be here anymore. <laughs> we, won't, we won't have to come be on this, in this human plane, this, this human, have this human body, because it seems like this is really the plane where we do a lot of hard work. <laughs> There's a lot, this is a very painful, it feels like a very painful place, this human realm that we live in. There's a lot, very challenging, very difficult. So maybe when, uh, just as the Buddha, when there's full awakening, there's the possibility for release, release from this worldly condition, 
Who knows? So our practice is one of inclusiveness. Dalai Lama calls it immeasurable inclusivity. I love that. Immeasurable, immeasurable inclusivity. We allow everything. We, re- we allow the resistance. Allow the rejecting, allow the grasping, allow everything that we see within our own mind. When we say to ourselves, it's not okay, this is happening, I don't want this to be here, I want this to change, I want this or I want that, we open to that, we allow that, because as soon as we try to push that away, we're back in the same behavior again. So it's a very slippery (laughs) kind of slope. It's We can kind of feel like we're in a quagmire sometimes. So this ah, breathing, breathing one breath or one step, feeling the foot on the ground, oh, just the pressure of the foot on the ground. Ah, And then the mind goes back into all of its confusion and agitation, but one step, another step. And then maybe more, and then breathing, and then just feeling the sun or the warmth on the skin, or hearing the sound of a bird, ah, just for that moment, just just a moment. And then back, kind of back in it again. But there's these breaks. And our day starts to break up. We don't feel so much like we're in a solid kind of state of pain or confusion or suffering, we start to notice these moments, these moments of freedom. They're moments of freedom. Every time I have a moment where I'm not identified, where I'm not caught, where I'm not feeding, where I'm not involved in the struggle, I, that's a moment of freedom. And it's the same kind of freedom that we're talking about when we talk about the freedom of the Buddha. Because we're talking about freedom from aversion, freedom from grasping, freedom from confusion. And in those moments, we're not caught. It's a taste. It's a smell, uh, uh, like a perfume, the perfume of freedom. I love that kind of sense of it. And if we get enough of that sweet smell, or a sweet taste, perhaps we'll want more of that. <laughs> and we start to understand where we can actually find it as we let go, as we become less caught, less identified. So allowing what's arising being less attached to our preferences for what we want to be happening in our experience. We allow ourselves to be where we are. That's why it's kind of simple in a way, to allow yourself to be where you are. That's assuming, of course, that you know where you are, (laughs) which really is the first step. So that moment where you wake up 
and then allowing yourselves to be where you are. And that if, then if you're simply aware with curiosity and interest, the experience reveals itself. There isn't anything else you have to do. The experience itself will flow and move to the next thing, the next moment. There's a natural unfolding as we stay present with curiosity and interest. That unfolding happens just like a flower knows how to open itself. We don't have to get in there and start working to open the flower. The flower knows how to open. The next moment reveals itself. And if I continue to allow myself to be where I am and I remain interested, the changes that happen start to reveal a process, start to reveal a path or reveal a journey or an unfolding. And there's nothing we need to do because we are that. I am that unfolding. I am that discovery. I am that journey. I am the path. It's not even I am walking the path. Everything is unfolding the way it needs to unfold. And something is revealed in that discovery beyond anything that the mind can imagine beyond anything that the ego could devise for itself. Because we then are in attunement with the nature, with the natural unfolding, with the dharma. The dharma means the law of nature, the unfolding nature. So when we allow, we become that nature itself. And there's nothing more that needs to be done. This Tibetan wrote Rinpoche said, there is nothing that has to be, that has to be done about whatever is happening, and there is nothing that has to be undone Therefore, nothing is wrong with you, <laughs> and nothing has to be fixed, because you are already that nature. There's no outside of it, and there's no inside of it. It is what's here. And so our practice is to recognize this, is to wake up to this, this knowing of the truth, the knowing of what's here, who you are, what this is, 
And so we do this simple practice. (laughs) The simplicity of being here now. So I'll end with this poem from an old Taoist monk. Stop setting snares. Get delicate. Relax. Follow where that leads you. Clouds may be thick or thin. Windows may be dark or bright. Take it easy. You can break the poor old dragon's jaw by pulling teeth for meaning. Stumble along as upright as you can and don't be covetous, grasping. Those who try to hold what flashes in the worldly storm will drown. Let the sun and moon handle rising and falling. I'll pretend I know nothing. Get delicate, (laughs) relax, follow where that leads you. Let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. I'll pretend I know nothing. That is all. Let's sit for just a minute or two. May all beings awaken their mind. May all beings awaken their heart. May all beings be liberated from their pains.